God bless you, everybody. Great to see you. God is good, isn't he? Yeah, he is. It's hard to sometimes to reconcile what's going on in our personal lives with the goodness of God, but that's just because we don't fully understand the goodness of God. The goodness of God is informed by eternity, and we don't really understand eternity. We understand the confines of this life. So what happens to us today, tomorrow, and all the rest looms really large in our mind and hearts as it should be. But from, from the point of view of an eternal God who has no beginning nor end, he wants us to have eternal benefit. Therefore, he allows us sometimes to go through very difficult things which he sees to be potentially beneficial for our eternity, not just for the confines of this life. So we can say God is so good, even if I don't, even if you don't fully comprehend his ways. I want to tell you, his early disciples, followers who later came to be known as apostles, did not fully understand him at all. Now, this is quite encouraging to me. I hope it is to you. There's so much of the Bible I don't fully understand. So many of the truths of Christ are hard to wrap my mind around. Maybe you're having the same experience. So it's encouraging to me to see that these early disciples who were right there in the literal presence of Jesus didn't fully comprehend his ways either. In fact, he told them he's leaving. Now, if you think they understood that, you are wrong. They did not get that at all. They were digging in. They envisioned him to be some kind of unusual rabbi. They saw in him the potential to be liberated from secular oppression, namely Rome. They saw him to be the one who would head up an entirely new government. They were as tired with their government as we may be with ours. What could I tell you? And so they envisioned all this hopeful stuff in this marvelous rabbi Jesus, and then hot on the heels of all this hopeful expectation, he said, I will be leaving you. I am departing. And he told them this over dinner. It was uh, the Last Supper we refer to it. It's a Passover dinner, a Passover Seder. And at that Last Supper, which is the roots of our celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Lord did many, many things, one of which was to tell them he's departing. That's the context of what we're reading now. It's in John chapter 14. We're going to pick up where we left off. And so in literally a few hours from what he's saying to them here, he'll be gone. He'll be crucified, buried, he will be resurrected and ascended to heaven. They don't get any of this. He knows that. He's quite sympathetic. And so he offered to them some comfort. We saw about it last week. Uh, we know this person to be called the Holy Spirit. The Lord referred to him as another helper. He said, I'll be going, but there'll be another helper. I will request that the Father send him to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But the Lord loves them deeply as he loves us that's the biggest struggle I think I have, you have in the Christian life, and that is to uh, enter into the full embrace of the love of God because we are unlovely. We know what we're made of. We think there's no way God could really uh, fix his love to us. That's the biggest battle, but he does love us just as we are. So he wanted to give them more comfort about his departure than he already did. And so he's going to offer them something quite amazing here now in John chapter 14. We'll pick up where we left off. It's now in verse 18. John chapter 14, verse 18. Here's what it says. I will not leave you as orphans. 
It's a sad thing when you think about the myriad number of children who are orphans in our world today. I could hardly look at this photo of some. You know what the hopeful expectation of an orphan is? It's that somebody will come for them. That's what every young child who's been orphaned one way or the other lives for. Will it be me? Will it be me? Will someone come for me? I just want a home that's safe. I just want to be loved. Am I that unlovely that nobody is coming for me? And so the Lord knows this because he's a sympathetic savior. And so he tells these who soon will be apart from his literal physical presence. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. I will not leave you that way as orphans. You need not doubt about whether I will come back for you. For he states, can you see it? I will come to you. I will not leave you as an orphan without any assurance of rescue and safety and adoption and embrace. No, I'll be departing from you, but I will come again. I will not leave you as orphans. Furthermore, he has assured them, I will not leave you as many orphans are left, and that is without care. No, says he, remember, I told you I'll ask the Father for another helper, and he will be here in you to provide care for you. You will have a helper from me in heaven, and you'll have a helper on earth, and that is the Holy Spirit. But he said, do not despair. I will come to you. But, verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. Your situation will be different. I'm not leaving so as to abandon you, you will see me, but this is not true of the world, of unbelievers. They, after a little while, will no longer see me. The last time the unbelieving world saw this Jesus, whom we worship, in whose name we are baptized, and whose praises we sing, the last time the unregenerated world saw him, was when he was murdered and buried in the ground to prove he was dead. That's the last image, visible image of Christ the world was left with. But, says he, you will see me because I live, you will live also. And so he's saying to them, though my death and burial was the last experience of me that the world had, you will have an ongoing experience because of the fact that I will live even after death. And because of our union and close connection, which I think we don't fully understand, the Lord says, because I live, you shall live also. In fact, we will live together in union. Death and burial is not the final word for you and I. And so though the world's image of me is of a dead, crucified pretender to the throne, a so-called savior who couldn't save himself, still it will be different for you. 
because I will give you eyes that are even better than physical eyes, though you will not see me for a while physically. What about your heart? Is there room in your heart for me? You will be able to embrace me, though you don't see me personally. Look, folks, I woke up about 4.30 this morning. Brad and I were talking. Uh, he and I, we just wake up. We don't need an alarm clock. You just get up, and there you have it. So I like to start the day with the Lord, and I sit in a chair. I talk to him. It's quite amazing to me that he's that available, and then I, I let him speak to me. That's always a good thing. I have to be going through Psalms now. I read a Psalm a day, not to study it, not to communicate it. I just want to sit at the Lord's feet during that special time and let him say to me what he wants to. And I thought to myself, I am so aware of the presence and reality of the risen Savior, I really don't think I could believe in him more if his physical presence was in the room. There's something that happens when you get born anew. Something inside of you persuades you that he's as real as if he was physically in the room. And so he says to them, you're different than worldly people. They saw me for a spell. You will see. When is the last time a Christian will see the Christ? Well, there is no last time, don't you see? It's an ongoing relationship with a living Savior. That's that's what he said. Now, his disciples had a very limited understanding, like us, about a whole bunch of stuff. Like them, we are learning more and more, I hope, about our riches in Christ Jesus. And so, he tells them something now they didn't fully know of nor understand at the time, but will grow into. And here is what he says now, verse 20. In that day, so that's a future indicator. Not now, he knows. At present, you can't fully comprehend what I'm about to tell you, but in that day, look what he says, you will know, you don't, you don't get this fully now, but in that day, some future time, you'll know this, I'm in my Father. Not only that, you are in me, and I in you. The overwhelming, incomprehensible union of Father and Son extended to men and women who embrace the Son of God. Imagine being put into this close company. The kind of union the Son shares with the Father is the kind of union the Son is willing to share with us, and they don't get it. It's hard, it's hard, to, it's hard to get it. You know, look, they're concerned about his departure, his absence, and he tells them, yeah, but I shall evermore be in union with the Father, and I shall in the same manner forevermore be in union with you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. For every person in here who's experienced the pain of rejection, separation, divorcement, abandonment, Here's your healing bomb. This magical, mysterious, incomprehensible union that can be yours, that is yours in Christ Jesus if Christ Jesus is your Savior. It can never, ever end. What can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Paul, a very bright man, asks that question and answers it for himself, coming to the conclusion, nothing. Nothing, nothing, 
nothing. Now, John has often spoken of the unity between Father God and Son of God. Here he now speaks of the unity between Son of God and ones like us. The first union between Father and Son is eternally natural, but the second union between us and the Son, that is purely by grace. Have you accepted the grace of the eternal Son of God who says, if you ask me, I will enter your life and establish an unending union between the two of us that will not let you go. Well, now the Lord repeats something he said earlier because he's the master teacher and he knows students don't get things when they first hear it. Truths have to be repeated. We spoke about obedience as an indicator of one's love for God. That's repeated here, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. I mean, you keep things that you value. He who has my command but values them to the extent that he obeys them. But he's the one who, he's the one who loves me. And, and not only that, he who loves me will be loved by my father. That makes sense. Someone is good to your child or grandchild. Well, you have warm feelings toward that person. And the son of God says something similar. If you love me by respecting what I ask you to do, you will have my father's love. And, and not only that, I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You know, he's saying by faith, we are already in union with the Lord Jesus. That is true of every saved person, regardless of that saved person's level of maturity. Union with Christ is ushered in immediately upon one's acceptance of Christ. But then after that, we differ. Uh, though there's union with Christ that is characteristic of every believer, the level and quality of one's communion with Christ really differs. The quality of fellowship. The relationship is intact, contingent on his grace. I got that. But just as is true in a family which has different kids and some kids are closer to the parents than the other kids you love them equally and yet the level of relationship, intimacy, closeness sometimes differs. So to the Lord says you, this is a function of obedience and the obedient one who is in union with me will have a deeper level of communion with me. In fact, I will love him. He loves all of his kids, even the renegade ones. But the experience of his love will be greater by the ones who are running to him, not away from him. And not only that, a level of disclosure of this Jesus will be greater for the one who, through obedience, welcomes it and invites it. That's what he says. So having and keeping God's commandments, please don't miss this, is not at all what saves a person. Not at all. They were already saved. He's speaking to saved people. Their union with Christ by faith has already been mentioned clearly in the prior verse. I'll read it to you again. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. He's not saying obey me to be in me. He's saying you is in me. Therefore, live like you are. You don't obey me to earn my favor. You couldn't obey me good enough for that. 
I bestow my favor on you by grace and mercy. Therefore, in light of that, I've heaped upon you sonship and daughtership. I've entered into union with you. I've called you by name. I've adopted you into my family. Live up to that status and obey me is what he says. So this encouragement to obey was not so that they can be in union with him. It's because they're already in union with Christ. Who are you? If you're a Christian, you're one who is in union with Christ. Don't live beneath who you are. If we live up to our new status in Christ, we'll do far better. And so in light of this grand reality, union with Christ, we're exhorted to cultivate the quality of communion with Christ. And obedience is the key. But it must be motivated by love for God, not by fear of God. And when we love him by obeying him, it engenders fuller disclosure of God. What's the key to unlocking the scriptures? It's not attending seminary, although that's a great joy and privilege. It's not participating in Bible study, though that too is a very good thing. The key to unlocking the scriptures is a willingness to do what they say. And the Lord Jesus says, when you do that, I will illumine Scripture even more than you can imagine. I'll disclose myself more to you. Now look at this, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. Do you have that in your Bible? Yeah, that's important. It appears that on the Lord's team of disciples, there were two Judases. One not Iscariot, some say, many say, is probably referred to elsewhere as Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Now, I don't understand all that. I don't want to labor over it too much. I know for this, this part is sure. John, the writer, is distinguishing this Judas from that Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of the Lord, means Judas, the one from Cariote. Iscariot is not his last name. It's a demarcation of where he comes from. Judas from Cariote. Here John is saying, Judas, another guy on the Lord's team, is not that one from Cariote. He already left the team. During the Passover, he left. And he's preparing to betray the very Lord who loved him. Another Judas distinguished from that one, this Judas said to him, he said something to the Lord because he's puzzled by what he heard from the Lord. And so he said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? See, he heard the Lord saying, I'll disclose myself to you, but in a while, the world won't see me. The next time, the world will see him. Last time was at his death and burial. The next time the Lord will see him is when he comes to judge the world. And Judas, not Iscariot, is confused because he heard in the Lord's time with him over three years, he heard the Lord's heart to embrace the world and to disclose good news to the world. So now Judas asks a very, very question. What, what's happening? Did you change your mind about your program to reach the world redemptively? What's going on? 
And so verse 23, we read, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, when I read this, I thought, boy, that's not an answer. But it is, if you look carefully at it. Judas is confused about the means by which the Lord desires to disclose himself to people. And here the Lord is saying, anyone in the world will find me if that one accepts me, obeys me, loves me. That one of any stripe and gender and race and socioeconomics, that one, regardless of ethnicity and geographic differences and language, that one, anyone in the world, that one who accepts me and loves me by keeping my word, well, that one will be loved by my father. And not only that, we, my father and I, we will come to him, Judas. We will disclose ourselves to that one. In fact, we'll make our abode with him. Now, that's a power-packed word, that word abode. We've actually seen it before in this chapter. Early on in John chapter 14, verse 2, a million years ago we were there, and that verse said, in my father's house, do you remember this, are many rooms. That's the same word for abode that's used here later on in the text. See where it says many rooms, that means dwelling places or abiding places, places of abode. In my father's house are many places of abode. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place, an abode for you. And so what the Lord is saying here is that you can be hopeful about your future abiding place made ready for you in heaven with me. But you can also be assured that your very life is to be an abiding place for my father and me now. He's saying, Judas, don't question my willingness to disclose myself. My father and I are willing to take up our abode now in the very life of even the most blatant sinner who asks me to save them from their sin. Now, in this regard, a man named Warren Wearsby, perhaps you've heard of him, made this wonderful statement. He said, salvation means we're going to heaven, but submission means heaven comes to us. I've been on both sides of the issue of obedience. Uh, I recommend obedience rather than disobedience. Uh, it's pleasurable, quite delightful to obey and to be rightly related to Almighty God. It's kind of a taste of heaven on earth. You sense uh, that you're filled and occupied by the Lord Jesus. There's no secret rooms here in your abode. He, his spirit, is welcome through your obedience to fill all the spaces and you just function better. There's a measure of peace and joy that goes beyond the material things of the world. And so he's saying, Judas, don't call into question my intent to occupy space. I am willing to 
make up my abode, not just when one gets to heaven, but even now, contingent on one's invitation for me to do that, to do that very thing. And uh, now the Lord says in verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. He, he's identifying two categories of humankind. We divide in all kinds of ways, but there's really only two. There are those who keep his word, loving him, and then there are those who don't love him and don't. He's referring to those here who don't. He who does not love me doesn't keep my words, and the word which you here is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The Lord is making quite a point. He's reinforcing this. What you hear from me, those are the very words of God. Though you are hearing them from a carpenter's son, a Jewish person who looks fairly ordinary, just like a short Jew with curly hair and darkened skin. If he were to enter this room, nobody would get up and give him a seat. He just looked like everybody else. There's nothing extraordinary about his appearance. And as a result, there's a tendency to discount the forcefulness of what he's had to say. You know what he's saying? By the way, he's saying, those who love me keep my word. And by the way, my word is not mine alone. My word is the Father's. It's not possible for a person to say, I believe in God, but not Jesus. It's not possible for one to say, I respect God, but not Jesus. Once again, the Lord is showing the equality between the two. He is saying, you cannot bypass me, discount me, jump over me, and think you're rightly related to God, because what you hear from me is from God. That's what he's saying. And so he goes on to say in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, notice, the helper will do two principal things. He will, here's the first, teach you all things. Here's the second, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I think that applies to anybody today. But in the context, it was addressed specifically to the 11 remaining followers of the Lord. And the fulfillment of that grand promise in verse 26 is something called the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the one we're studying, John. The Lord has addressed this promise in verse 26 to those very men. And he's saying to them, the principal ministry of the Holy Spirit to you will be to teach you. You're going to have an in-house teacher to help you to fully understand what I said to you in my time with you, but also to help you remember. And so uh, the text says, but the advocate, which is another way of saying helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything I've said to you. And we have the four gospels to prove that the Lord kept his word. Here's what I mean. How could it be possible for the gospel writers, again, they're ordinary folk, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how could they possibly recall all that the Lord said and did and taught them in his three years with them? Folks, let's be honest. Tomorrow, you will not remember what I'm saying tonight. And frankly, neither will I. So over three years, the marvelous things the Lord said, how could they recall it? Not only that, add to it their very limited understanding of what he said. We see this all through the Gospels. As I say, it's very encouraging. They don't get what he's saying. How could they record with accuracy the sum total of his teaching over three years, most of which they didn't fully understand to begin with. And that's the primary ministry, he says, of the helper of the Holy Spirit, two things. He will teach you about what I told you. He'll give you more understanding. And second, he'll bring to mind the things I said to you. He will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So folks, the Holy Spirit of God inspired these men, the writers of the New Testament, to write exactly what God wanted them to write. And in keeping with this, I'm struck by the words of one of these men, Peter, who, in keeping with this theme, Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. You know what he said? But know this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation no for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the holy spirit spoke from god peter said what the lord promised back here in john 14 came to fruition scripture in other words did not originate in man's mind what we read is not the product of the writer's imagination and creativity. No biblical writer wrote on his own initiative. They were moved, each, by the very Spirit of God in them. He is the author. Folks, this is known as the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine. You know when an artist is inspired, an author to create something. That's not what we're talking about here. They were not inspired to write. They were moved by the very Spirit of God to write. It's as if he exhaled into them the very message he wanted for them to record so that folks like you and I can pour over their words with utmost confidence that though God did not bypass their human personalities, still, Divine authorship is behind the writing of Scripture. He used people, but he so superintended the task that he ensured what they wrote is exactly what he wanted for us 2,000 years removed to be confident about and to live by. So the Holy Spirit employed ordinary people to compose Scripture but it's the Holy Spirit who was behind it all. And in so doing, he didn't overwhelm their humanity. They were not comatose, you know, some holy state of, I don't know, altered state of consciousness. No, no, no. He somehow wonderfully moved in them so that they would write scripture, which we can read today. Moved by the Holy Spirit in such fashion that their words convey the very word of God, not their own thoughts or interpretation. 
So the words of the Bible are human words. They're not angelic. Isn't that good of God? I have a hard time understanding the human words of Scripture. I couldn't understand it if God didn't accommodate himself to our lower level of understanding. So he moved people just like us, not angels, to write Scripture so that they could speak to us and we could understand it. So folks, make no mistake about it. The origin of Scripture is divine. The primary author is God through his Holy Spirit. Peter said, men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. They were moved or carried along just as a ship at sea is carried along by the wind. Now, folks, I believe and I hope you do too. The Bible is the authoritative proclamation of God, God's word. Men were inspired to write it. And if God inspired men to write the Bible, that leads to another doctrine called the doctrine of inerrancy. When someone asks me to defend the inerrancy of Scripture, that means there's no error in the Bible, I go back to the first doctrine of inspiration, and I simply say God does not inspire an erroneous, fallible product. God inspired Scripture, therefore it is without error. Folks, the Bible, this is what we say around here, you should know this. We believe the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God. And if there's anything, we will, I hope, never compromise, that's it. The Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, and infallible word of God, which leads me to this. If it's that much, then what is its primary message, we ought to get it. Please allow me, it's not so easy to simplify the 66 books of scripture with a symbol. I think this symbol uh, sums up to me the main message of the Bible, a bridge. Imagine yourself on one side of it. God is on the other. You may wish to get to him, but you cannot because the bridge has to be built. Sin has separated us from access to him because he's really uncompromisingly holy. It's like oil and water. Sin doesn't win us an audience with a sinless, holy creator. We need a bridge to him. And in our pride, humankind has come up with bridges over time of his or her own fashion. One of the primary principal one, ones is religion. Every religion, though they differ in some ways, say the same thing. That is, if you do the things we religious leaders tell you to do, that will enable you to erect a bridge to get you to the other side. Join our religion. Do things our way. Walk the way we walk. Bow down the way we bow down. Fast on the days we want you to fast. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. But yeah, they're vain attempts to cross over. Man-made attempts at bridges. Another one is, I'll be good. I'll give money to the poor. I'll engage in humanitarian service projects. I will campaign for a cleaner environment. Would you rob God of his uncompromising holiness by making such a meager offer? God, here's what I offer to you. 
as a sign of my goodness. Surely this will satisfy your requirements. No, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There can be no bridge that gets us to the other side in our own effort and energy. And so, Almighty God, this is a mystery. Stooped so as to provide the bridge for us. Jesus is the bridge. How does he qualify more than any other? Well, on the divine side, he takes the Father's hand. And on the human side, because he became one, he takes the hands of any human who will give him their hand. And he could join us together. He's the mediator, whereas there is no other. He is the only way. The number one problem humankind faces is not the economy. It's surely not the environment. The number one problem humankind faces is alienation from God. We cannot get to him. In fact, the same Peter in another place said, for Christ also died for sins. The just, that's him, for the unjust. Why did he do it? That he might bring us to God. How did he do it? Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you have not crossed over to the other side, reconciliation with the God from whom you are alienated, by faith, take the hand of the bridge. Jesus is the bridge. Say, oh, great Savior, forgive my sins. I have plenty of them. It's my nature. Thank you for suffering and dying in my place. I praise you for rising up from death. Now would you establish this union you talk about so that I could share in the fellowship with which you have fellowship with your own father. And would you bring me to the other side? The cross is the bridge. I accept what happened on the cross. I accept what you've done on my behalf. I'm alienated from the creator. That's why I feel so estranged, so separated, so empty. I accept what you've done, bridge builder. Thank you for what you've done to solve my number one problem, my separation from the very God who gave me life. Would you solution to my number one problem would you lord jesus forgive me come into my life and bring me into union with you and the father have you prayed a prayer meaning it like that at some time in your life if not why not do you have a good reason why not a bridge, a bridge to life. I carried this around with me. I didn't just put it in my pocket for tonight. You have to trust me. It's called the bridge to life. It's one of many wonderful little tractates you can put in someone's hand. It depicts Jesus as the bridge between us and Almighty God. If you're stumbling over, how do I share my faith with someone? Why don't you put something like this in their hand? Why don't you say, I hope you read that, the message in it. Why don't you tell them, changed my life. The message in it brought me into right relationship 
with the God who I never knew. And he's willing to do that for you as well. It's a starter. Can God use something like this? Oh, come on. Sure he could. Has God used the gospel message to win you to himself? He desires to have you cross the bridge through Jesus the Son. If you haven't, would you talk to us tonight before you leave? We'll meet with you in the Connection Center. If you have, would you summon up by God's power the boldness to say, oh God, in this next week, let me tell someone you're the bridge to life. Let me tell them. Don't worry about giving them full understanding. <laughs> Not even the Lord's intimate followers had that. But when God is working in someone's life, your simple explanation of what Jesus has done for you is enough, enough to usher them in the kingdom. I was separated from God in my sin. I was here. He was there. I could not get to him. He got to me by sending his son, Jesus. When I accepted him, I immediately had forgiveness and my standing with God changed. I no longer was at war with him. I was at peace. In fact, I was adopted into his family. I'm no orphan left behind. I'm an adoptee and I'm on good terms with the father. And I'm guaranteed not only his love and forgiveness, but when I die, I'll be in union with him forevermore, for he lives. And because he lives, I live too. Look at that. It's not so complicated. Let's turn up the burner for evangelism in this next year. Why? What if this next year was going to be our last? Now, it could be for you or me individually. But what if, it, what if the Lord... What if the Lord, now we wouldn't be disappointed if he came and he could at any time, but folks, we got work to do. There's a harvest of people waiting to hear the gospel like you did, like I did. Lord Jesus, would you light the burner within us so that we see people with the compassion with which you see them? Oh, God, in heaven, no matter what they look like externally, black, white, tall, short, male, female, old, young, we know what the problem is common to humankind. It's the very one you came to solve. We've been entrusted with that message. Oh, God, clumsy though we may be, put it within us to broach the subject, even though it may not be smooth. So what? Oh, God, put it within us to have the joy of sharing the good news with someone even this week. And if the good news has not yet fully impacted anyone here tonight, I pray that person would melt under the image of the bridge and say, Lord Jesus, be the bridge for me. Be the mediator of a better way. Help me to cross over into right relationship with your Father. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. Make me one who not only has crossed over the bridge, but now who lives to proclaim you are the bridge to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Have a happy time of evangelism, I hope, this week.